Happy Arctic Sunday to everybody. Kind of felt like I woke up this morning and I looked at my phone, six degrees. Like, man, are we, are we in Anchorage or Asheville? You know, it's very, very cold. Uh, some of us got uh, a little bit of snow. We got about an inch, so enough for the kids to play in, and that was fun. Some of you, I heard, got absolutely nothing. Uh, one lady on our staff, they had seven inches. And so they had to dig out to actually uh, get, get here this morning. And so whether you got a lot or little, uh, man, it's warm in here. Glad that you're here. If you're new or visiting, my name is Chris. I get to be one of your pastors here at New Life. If you're watching online or in the house, uh, man, we are glad that you're joining us uh, this morning. Now, last week, we began a journey through what is, I, I would argue, probably the most famous sermon uh, in history, the Sermon on the Mount. It's been called the greatest sermon ever preached by the greatest preacher to ever live. In this longest recorded sermon that we have from Jesus Christ, he describes in intricate detail what it's like to live in his upside-down kingdom, right? Now, last week, what Jesus did, if you were here, you remember this, is he gave us the keys to happiness. And one of the things we talked about is that we're all on a happiness quest, Right? It doesn't matter if you're a Christian, a non-Christian, if you're a seeker, if you're a Buddhist, a Muslim, whatever it is, we're all on a happiness quest in life. And last week Jesus says, this is what the world tells you will make you happy, but let me actually give you the keys to happiness. And so what he did last week is he, he, he really gave us eight, what I would say are kind of like pithy statements uh, called beatitudes that all start with the word, you guys remember from last week? Blessed, right? So like, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are the meek, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, blessed are the merciful. So he goes through eight of those, and we kind of distilled all of those truths down into what I would just call, for lack of a better word, like a kingdom manifesto. And we just called it Jesus's Roadmap to Happiness. So that's all on the screens for you right now. If you missed last Sunday, you can take a snapshot of that, and uh, that's the, the two-second version instead of the 45-minute version. That's what we talked about last week. Now, if the, if the kingdom principles, if the Beatitudes seem to you uh, to be a, a little bit theoretical, then this next section on salt and light that Jesus is going to give us uh, today becomes very practical. It moves from theoretical to practical. You see, in Jesus' teachings, particularly in this sermon, uh, they're, they're super countercultural. Right, almost otherworldly. And I think for a lot of us, uh, because of that, it could be easy for us to kind of just shelf them as an intellectual exercise for the mind instead of a way of life to put into practice in our everyday lives. And so today, Jesus will take the ideas he introduced last week and he'll help us put them into practice in our lives in a helpful way. But let's take a moment, let's pause, and let's uh, just still our hearts, calm our minds, and get prepared to receive uh, the word of the Lord, and uh, let's ask him to help us now. God, we, we come to you uh, on this uh, frigid and yet beautiful day, and uh, whether our, our week was a good week or whether our, our week was a, a challenging one, God, we're, we're all gathered here because we need something. Namely, we need a, a word from our creator. Uh, we don't need a word from a man. We don't need opinions from the pulpit. We need a, a word from the living God of this universe. And so we ask that you would deliver that to us this morning through these ancient words, these ancient teachings from Jesus, Holy Spirit. We pray that you would be in this place and in this space. You would be active, that you would illuminate all of these things that Jesus said on a mountain all those years ago across the ocean in a way that would actually transform our hearts and our minds so that we would become more like you, Jesus. 
It's in your strong name that we pray all these things. Amen. Now, if you remember where we left off last week in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus was telling us that if we live out these eight Beatitudes, right, these eight kind of countercultural characteristics of those who live and walk in his upside-down kingdom, that we should expect the world to throw us a party and celebrate us. Right? Is Is that what he said? No, no, no. He says, actually, if you live out this kingdom manifesto that I'm giving you, these eight beatitudes, these eight countercultural kind of kingdom principles, the world is actually going to what? Y'all remember? Yeah, they're going to persecute you. And so let's just look at the last three verses from last week to kind of set the stage for what he's going to teach this week. Starting in verse 10, this is what he said. He says, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against or falsely on my against you falsely on my my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So Jesus goes, "Hey, hey listen guys, the the, the way to find happiness in this world is is by living in this super countercultural, otherworldly way, kind of mapped out by these eight principles called the Beatitudes. And yet, when you live this out, you should expect pushback. And so we talked about last week how I, I think as followers of Jesus, we are beginning to, to, in a small degree, for sure, compared to our brothers and sisters across the world who are persecuted physically and their safety is in danger even today as they gather to worship like we're doing right now. But I think even in very small ways and subtle ways in our culture, we're beginning to feel that the temperature is being turned up, right, for those of us who love and follow Jesus and, and believe that the Bible is actually God's word. And so we talked about how maybe a few years ago, it kind of started off with more social pressure. It's kind of like, hey, believe what we believe, affirm what we affirm. If not, we're going we're gonna to cancel you, right? We're going to isolate you. You can't be in the cool kids club if you don't believe what we believe and all those sorts of things. And I think that, that over time, that, that so Social pressure will ultimately move to kind of economic uh, pressure or persecution. That's kind of what where the pathway that I see that we're on. But Jesus says when you when you experience that, right? Whether you taste a, a minor form of persecution because you're made fun of because of your walk with Jesus in your high school, or whether you're being physically persecuted in in some place like the Middle East or Asia or Africa. In either case, any kind of persecution that you experience, rejoice when that happens. He's like, man, don't, don't be sad. Don't go in your room and cry. Don't, don't get depressed. Rejoice. Be happy. Blessed are you when this comes to you because of me. Because Jesus goes, the kingdom of heaven belongs to those. It belongs to you. Now, this is important. In my experience, followers of Jesus tend to drift to one of two extremes when the temperature starts to get turned up on your faith walk. So if you're not careful, you can either end up as what I will call a chameleon Christian or a bunker Christian, all right? So let me just kind of define both of those for you. A chameleon Christian is someone who just kind of changes their colors to blend into their environment and surroundings, right? And so chameleon Christians would be those folks who just kind of lick their finger and get a, get a, get a feel for which way the cultural winds are blowing and just kind of roll with that, right? So it's cool to believe this. Okay, I believe that. Okay, it's no longer cool or acceptable to believe that. Okay, I no longer believe or accept that either. They don't want to buck the trend. They just kind of want to roll with the flow. 
So if the culture starts to head in a different direction from what Jesus taught on any number of things, gender or sexuality is kind of a hot topic today, but it could be one of a million things. How we spend our money, how we treat our spouses, how we raise our kids, how we interact with our neighbors, all of those things, chameleon Christians will say, well, I'm just gonna go with the the world instead of the teachings of Jesus and what Christians have practiced and believed for 2,000 years because I don't want to endure any kind of social pressure. I don't want to experience any kind of ridicule from my classmates or my neighbors or my family members. I don't want to taste any kind of persecution in my life. And so really what chameleon Christians do is they live in this kind of fear of man-based existence. Fear of man-based existence, which by the way is not what Jesus calls us to as his followers. So So that's one extreme, and maybe as you look at that, maybe ask your question, am I a chameleon Christian? Like, have my beliefs evolved over the years as cultural winds and what's popular and unpopular uh, changes? Am I a chameleon Christian? That's one extreme. When the temperature kind of begins to get turned up in any society or any culture, that could be one temptation. The other extreme is the bunker Christian. All right? It's Pastor Mike in 20 years. All right? (laughs) These are folks, these are the bunker Christians are the folks that say, hey, the world is evil. The world is dark. The world is sinful. Therefore, what I'm going to do is withdraw from the world so that I'm not polluted by the world. And so these are folks who don't really interact with their neighbors or their hallmates on their college campus. They don't really go to the places and spaces and culture where they're going to have to rub shoulders with dirty non-believers. They might say a, a nasty word that offends my sensibilities or something like that. And these are the folks that typically homeschool their kids and only listen to Christian music and only eat at Chick-fil-A instead of all the other heathen restaurants, right? Now, now listen. Before, before you get out your phone to email me, we homeschool our kids, and I love me some Chick-fil-A, all right? I can eat Chick-fil-A like nobody's business. Give me that 12-count nug meal with some waffle fries. Glory to God in the highest, right? It's good stuff. There's not, listen, there's nothing wrong with any of those things as long as, listen to me, church, as long as we don't become spiritual isolationists. As long as we don't become spiritual isolationists, bunker Christians. And so maybe, maybe a helpful question for all of us to ask today is, which one of those two extremes do you tend to drift towards? Because we all have a tendency one direction or the other. So just be honest with yourself. Which one of those two extremes do I tend to naturally just drift towards when things get hard in the culture in the world around me? Do I become more of a chameleon Christian or do I become more of a bunker Christian? Because here's the deal. What I think Jesus wants to do today is blow up both of those paradigms and offer a third way, a better way, a more effective way for his followers to live and interact in the world uh, and those around us. So let's pick it up right where Jessa read for us, Matthew chapter 5. Starting in verse 13, Jesus says this. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything said to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. In other words, it's of no use at all. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and then put it under a basket. 
but on a stand so that it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So here's what I want us to do. I want us to just spend a little time kind of unpacking these two metaphors that Jesus gives us as to how his people ought to influence the world around them, make a couple of practical observations, practical applications, and then we'll be done, right? So that's kind of the game plan for the time that we have left together. Now, you gotta understand something. In Jesus' day, two foundational pillars of everyday life were salt and light. Salt and light, right? Foundational, critical for everyday life. So let's start with salt because that's where Jesus started. Let's look at, let's look at verse 13 again. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Now I want you to notice right out of the gate, when Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth, that word you is something that uh, scholars or Bible nerds call a, a plural indicative, right? Meaning it's not a command. And that's interesting. It's not a command. It's actually a statement of fact. And he's saying this not to an individual. He's saying this to a group of people. In other words, Jesus is looking at his disciples, and I'd argue at us today as his modern-day disciples, and he's saying, hey, listen, to use a a southern euphemism, all y'all, we tend to read this individually. But he's saying, hey, listen, all y'all are the salt of the earth, all of my people, all you guys. Now, again, notice it's a statement of fact. You are the salt of the earth. Now, you may be good salt, you may be bad salt, but if you're a follower of Jesus, you are the salt of the earth. Now, he's not saying, hey, you should work to become the salt of the earth. If you just try harder to be a moral person, you'll become salt of the earth. You ought to be salt of the earth. One day, maybe you'll become salt. He doesn't say any of that. He says, statement of fact, you are the salt of the earth. Now, this is Listen, guys, this may not seem like a big deal. I'm telling you, it's, it's a huge deal because in the kingdom of Jesus, and this is massive. I almost put it on the screens for you, but I didn't. probably should have. This is important. Identity always comes before behavior. Identity always, in the kingdom of Jesus, comes before behavior. And so Jesus is saying, hey, listen, guys, this is who you are. You are salt. This is your identity. Therefore, be salty. Be who you are. <laughs> Right? Behavior, your behavior always flows from identity. Which is one reason I think that the attack on identity in our culture is so dark and sinister. You might even argue it's demonic. But here's the issue. So we like to talk about the world, but even inside the church, I think oftentimes we tend to get this backwards. Right? We tend to think, man, if... Once I get salty enough, or, or once I get my life cleaned up enough, or once I start reading my Bible more, or once I start praying more often, once I stop doing all the things that I'm ashamed that I do behind closed doors and nobody sees, once all of that happens, then I can come to God and then God can use me. And that's totally backwards in the kingdom of Jesus. Right? It's only that when we realize that we can never be good enough on our own, that we come to Jesus with empty hands and open hearts and he gives us a new heart and a new identity. And then, and only then, can we begin to live out these kingdom ethics that he's preaching about all these years ago. So when Jesus looks at us as his disciples and he says, hey, listen, y'all, all y'all, you are the salt of the earth. What does he mean, do you suppose? What, what, is, he, what is he trying to teach us? 
I think at least three things with a picture of the salt and probably a couple things with a picture of the light. But the number one uh, thing is this. The, the, the primary purpose of salt in Jesus' day was to disinfect or preserve. To disinfect or preserve. Now you have to understand, in, in those days, they didn't have this incredible contraption we call refrigerators. Now if you're watching this from Alabama or Mississippi, you probably don't know what that is, but uh, wait about five or ten years. I'm, listen guys, calm down. I'm from Alabama. It's a, it's a joke. It's a joke. They didn't, they didn't have refrigeration. This is was, this was a, a really big deal. So in Jesus' day, it, uh, meat would actually decay, begin to, de- to decay within hours or days. But if they would take salt and they would pack that salt on the cut of meat and they would rub it into the meat, it would preserve the meat. And it would prevent decay. This was actually an issue of life or death, right? Wintertime would come and you would have food and it would be preserved for you, right? Salt was also used for thousands of years, you may not know this, as a, as a disinfectant. Salt actually contains healing properties. Did you know that? I did a little research on, on salt this week, learned all kinds of things. Salt can be, uh, in the right form, in a pure form, can be antibacterial, antifungal, antiviral, and anti-inflammatory. That's amazing, right? When I was a kid, um, I, I, when I would get a, like a, a cut or a sore in my mouth, my mom would make me rinse with what? Salt water, yeah. I still, we still do that with our kids, warm salt water, right? And just heal that thing right up. It's incredible. Salt's amazing. Now, salt was so valuable, in fact, in ancient times, and we, we don't really understand the context, but 2,000 years ago, the hearers of this original me- message would have understood it very clearly. In ancient times, entire economies were built on salt. Wars were fought over it. Roman soldiers, in fact, oftentimes were paid either all of their salary or a portion of their salary in salt. In fact, our word salt comes from a Latin term, the Latin term for salt. Our, our word salary comes from that word. So I think the first thing that Jesus is teaching us when he says, hey, listen, all y'all, all you guys who are my followers who want to live in my kingdom are salt of the earth, I think what he's saying is, is this. Number one, as kingdom people, we disinfect. As kingdom people, we disinfect. Now, now, Jesus is noting, of course, the condition of the world is one of decay. Now, would anybody disagree with that? <laughs> like, if you turned the news on recently, now we live in a world of stench and decay, death, infection, from global wars to genocide to the abortion epidemic to poverty to human trafficking, which, by the way, is at an all-time high historically. If you thought that slavery was something from previous centuries, you would be wrong. You might be surprised to know that there are more human beings being enslaved today than ever before at any point in history, many of them for the nefarious purposes of sexual exploitation, primarily among women and children. Man, we we live in a world, y'all, that, listen, it's in decay It's a bad deal. And Jesus is saying, hey, listen, my people, my disciples should make a difference in the world. Like like our presence in the, the decay of this world ought to, at the very least, slow down the rate of decay around us. Right, well, like we should be disinfecting and preserving the goodness of God in the world around us. Listen, Christian, your neighborhood ought to be a better place because you're there. And if it's not, we think we have some, some questions to ask ourselves. Your apartment complex, your high school, your office should be a 
better, healthier, brighter, more healing place because you're there. And if it's not, I'm not sure that we're doing this whole following Jesus thing rightly. Now, now do, you, do you see that Jesus is calling us to be distinct from the world, but not separate from the world? Let's not get confused with that. He's calling us to be distinct from the world, but not separate from the world. Distinct, but not separate. Now listen, if, if, I, had, if I were up here and I thought about doing this, but it'd be kind of gross. If I, if I had a piece of meat in one hand and a jar of salt in the other hand and I never put the salt on the piece of meat, what good would it do for that piece of meat? What would it do? Absolutely nothing, right? The meat will eventually still decay while the solution sits right there uselessly. And I think Jesus is saying, listen, don't be that kind of disciple. Don't be that kind of disciple. You are salt, be salty. You are salt, be salty. Disinfect, preserve goodness around you. Make the world a better place. Now, salt also does something that I think that we're all intimately familiar with. Uh, most of us, I think probably all of us actually, um, have salt in our homes, don't we? Some of you have uh, fancy salt grinders. Some of you have nice pink Himalayan salt. Some of you with more uh, hippie tendencies maybe even have salt lamps in your house. We've had one of those before. Don't get mad. In any case, in any case, we all have salt. It's one of the most common household items anywhere that you travel in the world. And part of the reason that we all like salt and we all have salt in our homes is because it makes stuff taste what? Good. <laughs> it makes stuff taste really good, right? Like, like boiled broccoli. Ooh, oh. Sprinkle some salt on that bad boy. Team veggies, yes. Tastes good, right? In fact, some of you love salt so much that you just, you just shake it all over your food before you even try it, right? You haven't even tasted it yet. You're like, give me this salt. You just, you just pound it, right? Because you know that it tastes good. We have a, a, person, a person in our extended family, and I'm not gonna say any names, but um, even when we go to like a nice, expensive restaurant, which I, I didn't know this until recently, but when you go to nice, expensive restaurants, they don't have salt on the table. Do you know why? Because they salt it for you. They season it for you. In fact, it's considered offensive at a very expensive restaurant to ask for salt. And yet, this person in our family, every time we go, before he even tastes his food, he's like, where's the salt? And I'm just like, oh, my God, man. This ain't the Waffle House. At least try it before you dump a can of salt all over everything, right? But we, we love our salt. It flavors. It tastes good. It's good stuff. Right? Jesus is saying this. Number two, as kingdom people, we ought to be adding flavor to the world around us. We ought to be making things taste better. And so here's the picture. When we are scattered and, and rubbed into this world as disciples of Jesus, not only do we prevent it from becoming the worst possible version of itself, we actually should be making it better. Like we, we are to give people a taste of the coming kingdom of Jesus right here in the present. Now, there's a third thing I think Jesus is teaching us about being salt. And this was actually, for me, a brand new discovery this week in my studies. I was going through a, a commentary written by uh, my seminary president, Danny Aiken, and he pointed this out. I thought it was, it was beautiful. And this is number three. As the salt of the earth, we ought to be igniting thirst around us. Because isn't that what salt does? Have you ever eaten something that's super salty, a bowl of chips or peanuts or something like that? What happens? 
You get super thirsty when you eat salty food, right? That's because salt ignites thirst, right? In the, in the same way, the lives of Jesus-y people ought to ignite thirst in the world around them, namely for Jesus himself. So let me just ask you a question. Does your life make others thirsty for Jesus? Does your life make others interested, curious, inquisitive? Like, man, what what's, what's she have that I don't have? Like, like what, what does he have? What does he know that I don't know that allows him to live the way that he lives? In good times, bad times, there's just this inner peace and joy. I can't explain. I don't know what they have, but I need, I mean, I'm thirsty for that. I'm hungry for that. Or do people just kind of look at your life and shrug their shoulders? Because if you're being honest, there's really not a whole lot different from you than the way they live their lives. It's a haunting question, I think, for, for all of us. We really do an honest self-assessment of our lives. Do we make others thirsty for Jesus? And then Jesus gives us a second metaphor, starting in verse 14. He says this, you are the light of the world. So he moves on from salt now to light. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under the basket. That would be silly. But on a stand, right, way up high. And it gives light to all in the house. Now, you have to understand that before around 1882, uh, the world largely lived in darkness, right? So until fairly recently, in the grand scheme of global history, uh, you couldn't just walk in your house and flip a switch after dark to like read a book or play with your kids or anything like that, right? There were no uh, street lamps, there were no security lights and parking lots, like, so basically the sun would go down, people would go to their homes, they would lock the door and they would go to bed. It sounds like an awesome uh, weekend if you're over 40, now, that's what I live for. Light in those days was a commodity that represented two things, safety and life. Safety in life. Darkness, on the other hand, represented a couple of things in their day and our day as well. Evil and danger. Evil and danger. That's what darkness represented. So uh, even for Cheryl and I, in our neighborhood recently, we, we have this uh, HOA and this email newsletter thing that goes out, and so they kind of tell us what's going on. And uh, so just recently, we got an email. There's, there's been uh, break-ins in different vehicles parked in our neighborhood and there have been like strange people walking around two three o'clock in the morning kind of scoping out houses and stuff like that and so many of our neighbors have uh, gone to Lowe's and, and purchased these motion sensor lights right so if you walk past their driveway at night you, this, plot, this huge spotlight comes on right so sometimes now when I uh, walk my dog at night I get lit up like a Christmas tree right I'm just kind of walking it's like Poosh! And my neighbors are like peeking out. I'm like, I'm not, I live in number seven. My name's Chris. I'm not trying to rob you, you know, something like that. But, but that, that's kind of the picture that, that we have. And we expect that in our society. But in those days, there was none of that. There was no electricity, no artificial lighting. All they had was small oil lamps about the size of your hand. So if you think about it, just like one small oil lamp, if we were to kill all the lights in here, one small little oil lamp, how, how much good would it do? I mean, a little bit, right? Like, you, you maybe see a couple feet in front of you, but not very good. But if you had 100, 200, 300, 500, man, it would light this place up beautifully. Now, here, here's what's interesting. In John chapter 8, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Now, he's looking at his disciples, and he's saying, you are the light of the world. So you might be asking, well, which is it, Jesus? <laughs> 
Like, are, you, are you the light of the world or are we supposed to be the light of the world? Think about it this way. Uh, sun and the moon. The sun, right? It's, it's the own source of energy and light. By it, we see everything else. The moon, on the other hand, has no light source of, it own, of its own. All it does is reflect the source of light from the sun. So we're, we're the moon, right? We're, we are simply reflectors of the actual source of light, the sun. That's our call. As followers of Jesus, that's our, that's our purpose. Not to draw attention to ourselves, but to point people, to reflect people to the true source of light, Jesus Christ. Now, light does a couple of things quickly that I think Jesus is trying to show us here, teach us here. Firstly, and this is truth number four in this part of Jesus' sermon, uh, we as people of the kingdom, we illuminate, or at least we ought to. We illuminate. See, light dispels darkness. It exposes reality for what it actually is, right? Have you ever gone to a movie and, and maybe when you show up to the theater, um, the previews have already started so the lights are already dim and it's kind of dark and maybe you even have to turn on your, your, uh, your flashlight on your phone to find your way uh, to, to your seats and you get there and maybe it's a really warm movie and you're feeling good and you're sitting there with your boo and you're watching this movie and you're sipping on your Coke and eating your popcorn. It's really just this lovely experience. And you sit there and you kind of wait till the credits roll and the lights come up and all of a sudden you look around and you're like, man, I'm sitting on a napkin. Like, what, what's on that napkin, right? You step and your, your foot's all sticky and there's Skittles everywhere and there's a couple of gross teenagers making out in the corner and you're like, man, turn the lights back off, right? <laughs> I don't want to see this, right? Everything was good until the light exposed what's actually happening in the room. Right? That's the picture, right? Gross, right? That's one reason I think that, that as, as we begin to follow Jesus, sometimes we experience persecution. Most people don't want what's in the darkness of their lives being exposed by the light. Ignorance is bliss. So, in some real way, our lives expose the darkness that other people are living in, and that's uncomfortable for them. I think that's why Jesus says in John chapter 3 that the light came into the world, but people loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. And isn't that what we see in our world today? But light also does something else. It illuminates the path forward, right? If you've ever been camping at night, trying to walk anywhere in the dark without a flashlight, man, is fraught with danger, right? You don't know what's out there. You could be tripping over something, until you turn your flashlight on, right? Then you can see the pathway forward, you can avoid danger, you can find where you need to go, right? Light is life. Light is life. Light does one more thing, and this is the last truth uh, for today. As kingdom people, we ought to bring with us life. Now, any scientist in the world will tell you that life on this planet is impossible, listen, y'all, without light. As human beings, we need light, Animals need light to survive. Plants, vegetation, trees, everything on this planet needs light to live, right? Now, one of the things that's happened the last couple of years is that my wife um, has become the plant lady, all right? Now, I'm not sure when that happened or, or, or why that happened, and she's serving in kids right now, and so you guys don't tell her that I told this story, but uh, so, something happened within the last couple of years where she's become obsessed with plants, right? And so now you come to our home. If you come to our home, you will be greeted with a horde of beautiful greenery, right? Like stepping into an Amazonian rainforest. Butterflies might be fluttering around, toucans swooping around. 
I, listen, I'm good with it. I'm good with it. I, I like it. In fact, I'm grateful that she became the plant lady and not the cat lady, right? <laughs> because I refuse to live with furry little demons. But in any case, in any case, <laughs> we now live, we now live in vegetative bliss in our home. In fact, she brought a couple plants to my office this morning. Um, we, but here, here's what we've noticed, and this is, this is interesting. When we go out of town for a few days and we close the blinds and we lock up and we leave, we come back a few days later, guess what's happened to the plants? They're droopy, right? They look bad, they're half dead. But it, as soon as we open the blinds and we expose them to light, we give them light again, they begin to perk up, they begin to grow and flourish and new leaves kind of pop out, life abounds. In the same way, as disciples of Jesus, we ought to incite life just like that, to inspire growth in others who maybe have life physically but are still dead spiritually like we all once were before Christ. So others ought to look in at our lives and, and see a life that causes them to think, man, I, I don't know that I'm actually alive. Like when I look at their life, I mean, of course I'm alive physically, but but I don't, I'm not, I don't think I'm actually living life when I look at their life. It's, there's definitely something missing. They have something that I don't have. Our, our lives ought to produce this in other people around us who are far from God. And then Jesus closes the section with one imperative command, right? So everything before has been a statement of fact, no commands. He closes it with one imperative command, verse 16. In the same way, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that, and this is important, that's the hinge, so that, here's the purpose, they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Now listen, y'all. The church is not designed to be a religious institution or a social club for our entertainment. The church, by Jesus, is designed to be a torch in a cave. Right? We should, we should gather here just long enough just to get enough fuel to, to go out and light up our neighborhoods and our schools and our workplaces. Salt and light, right where we live, work, and play. Salt and light, making a difference right where we are. Now, one point of clarity, uh, uh, Jesus is not saying, hey, y'all, uh, go, go let the, the light of your awesomeness shine in the world. He's not saying that. You go out there and spark a girl. Uh, this is not what Jesus is saying. No, no, he, said, he says, I want, you, I want you to be light. I want you to do, go and do good works. Why, Jesus? What's the purpose? So people think we're awesome? People think we're incredible? No, he says, so that they'll give glory to who? To your Father who is in heaven. See, he is the light. That's his job. We reflect the light. That's our job. So that others can find life in the light, right? That's the whole thing. He's the light. We reflect light so others can find life in the light. Now, how does that work specifically, Jesus? He says, here's how. Here's how it works. Through your good works. In other words, by the way that you live. By the way that you uh, engage the world around you. By, by not becoming a chameleon Christian or hiding in a bunker. It's as we show compassion to the hurting around us in our school, on our college campus, in our office. It's as we 
mow the neighbor's lawn, as they go through some tragedy or difficulty. It's as we cook meals for the sick. It's as we serve at the homeless shelter. It's as we love on overworked teachers at the local public school. It's as we pray for the hurting that people begin to see God in us. Salt and light. I'll say it again. Christian, we should make the world a better place. Like your neighborhood, your workplace, your school ought to be a better place because you're there, shining light brightly, being salty, bringing healing and restoration and preservation to those around you who are experiencing darkness, decay, pain in their lives. Now, I don't know if you know this, but historically, Christians have done three things when they go into a new area. Historically, Christians have done three things when they go into new areas. They start churches, they build schools, and they open hospitals. Anywhere you go. So you go anywhere that Christian missionaries have been, Africa, Asia, South America, anywhere Christian missionaries have been, you find three things. Churches, schools, and hospitals that Christians started. Why is that? No other religion boasts that. It's just a fact. You can look it up. Because our faith is not just something we believe. It's who we are. You see that? It's a huge difference. It's not just something that we believe in our minds. It's something that we become. It's our identity. It's who we are. It's a new way of life. It's a new kingdom that's supposed to be a foretaste of the kingdom of Jesus in the present of what's to come in the future. So listen, friend. You, you may not know this. People cannot see the beliefs in your brain. Did you know that? You can have the best Christian theological treaties and frame. Nobody can see that. It's not going to change anybody's life. You know what they see, though? They see the way you live. They see the way that you love your spouse or your roommate, your kids, or if you're still at home, how you love your parents and respect your parents. They see how you care for your neighbors who are struggling and in need and hurting. They see those things. They can't see what you believe, but they do see your life. And you are, whether you realize it or not, Christian, you are preaching a sermon with your life every single day you're on this planet. So let me just ask you a question. If, if people could only know what God is like by looking at your life, what would they conclude? Like if there were no churches, no, no Bibles, if, if, if people could, the only way they could know what God is like is by watching your life, what would they conclude about God? I don't know about you, but that is a haunting question for me. But it shouldn't be, right? If we're, if we're living salty lives and we're shining brightly as, as Jesus has called us to do, then it shouldn't be a, a haunting question. Now, let me give you, as we wrap up, here's the big idea. If you get nothing else, get this. Following Jesus should be visible and influential. All right? That's the whole deal. Following Jesus should be visible and influential. Listen, believer, follower of Jesus, you are salt, you are light. Be who you are, is what Jesus is saying. I think the tragedy of the modern day church in America is that instead of being kind of rubbed into the wounds of the world like a healing salt, or instead of shining brightly into the chaos and darkness and pain of this world, we either become like the world, which Jesus calls losing our saltiness, or we retreat into isolationism, which Jesus says is like hiding a light under a basket. Both of those things would be dumb to do. 
And so believer, this year, as we stand on the precipices of a brand new year in 2024, let's be salty and shine brightly. I love this quote from John Wesley, a pastor, preacher in the Great Awakening. He said this, light yourself on fire with passion and people will come from miles to watch you burn. The way we live matters. What we believe in our minds also is extremely, supremely important, but how we flesh that out in our everyday lives is just as important. How we live matters. Now listen, Jesus came in a manger, not to live in a palace, but to be rubbed into this world, to bring bring healing to our rotting lives. He left as light, the light of heaven, to come into our darkness, to illuminate the pathway back to the Father. And although Jesus was distinct from us, he refused to be separated from us. And so Christian, let's recommit as we stand right on the edge of a brand new year, 2024, let's recommit in a fresh way to be salt and light. To be salt and light. Not for our own glory or so that people will think we're so awesome, but for the fame and name of our great King, Jesus Christ. Now we'll finish with this. The worship team can go ahead and come on up. For the person here who's in the room, watching online, and maybe you're still outside of the family of Jesus today. This is an important distinction. I want you to know this. You do not get into the kingdom of God by being salty or shining brightly. You don't get in by your good works. That's moralism and that's dead religion. You get in by turning from your sin. That's what we call, the Bible calls repentance. Repentance. By turning from your sin and trusting in Jesus. And when you do that, he gives you a new heart. And from that new heart will flow all of these things that he's talking about in the Sermon on the Mount. From from having a new heart, all these things will begin to naturally flow out of your life. But it all, listen to me, it all starts by turning from your sin and surrendering your life to Jesus. If that's something that you're interested in, if that's something that you desire to do, like I did when I was in college a couple years ago, um, I'm gonna give you an opportunity to do that as we pray. Would you bow your heads with me, close your eyes, let's pray, and then we're gonna worship. Father, we come to you, and we are grateful that you called us to a purpose beyond just the everyday existence of the grind of getting up and going to school and doing our homework or punching in at the office. God, you've called us to something far greater than any of kind of the mundane things that we do in our lives. You've called us into your kingdom. You've given us a new heart. You've given us a new identity. You've called us to be salt and light in this world, to preserve your goodness in a world that's decaying, to shine light into the darkness of everything that's around us, God. Thank you that you've given us a mission, that you've given us a purpose, that we don't have to guess at what our purposes in this life that you've laid it out for us God and yet we would confess I think that living that life is impossible without your spirit leading us like I don't I don't have enough willpower I don't have enough self-control within myself to live this ethic out consistently in my life I need you every single day of my life to live this out faithfully and God, so would you, would you help us to do this? We confess that we need you. We can't do it on our own. Holy Spirit, would you guide us as we wake up? Would you give us compassion goggles as we talked about last week to see the hurting, to see the needs around us? 
And not to ignore those people or ignore those places or those uncomfortable situations, but Father, to step into them. Not so that people will think we're so awesome, but so they'll, they'll know how awesome of a Savior we serve in you. So God, would you help us to be salt and light if we're already in your family? God, I pray for the person here watching online who maybe is not a part of your family yet, God. If their desire is to begin that relationship with you, that adventure and journey and knowing you, that they would just pray some prayer like this. The words don't matter. It's just about the posture of our hearts, but they would just cry out and say, God, I realize now that that I'm separated from you, that I'm just trying to do this in my own strength and it's not working. It's never worked. I'm a sinner. I'm a rebel, separated from a perfect and holy God, but I don't, I don't want to live that way anymore. I want to know you. I want to have a relationship with my creator. I want to know Jesus. I want to have the Holy Spirit to lead me and guide me in my life. And so, Father, just the best way I know how, I just want to open my heart and open my life to you. I surrender today to you, Jesus. I turn from my sin. I turn from doing life my way. I want to embrace your kingdom and your kingdom ethics and your way of life. Father, I pray for anybody who maybe said that prayer that they would have the courage to reach out, that they would have the courage to come and talk to me or somebody after the service or reach out to their chat host online so that we could high-five them, celebrate their new life in Jesus and help them begin this journey well. Jesus, we love you. You are the light of the world. Help us be salt and light this year for your fame and for your glory. We ask it all in your beautiful name, Jesus. Amen. Church family, let's stand and let's worship.